For those who aren't familiar with the Moneyball philosophy, where have you been? That's Billy Bean, the former general manager of the Oakland Athletics baseball team. His revolutionary method of identifying undervalued in-game statistics and signing otherwise limited players who excel at those enabled the little man to compete on a shoestring budget. It worked for Oakland, but could it work in football? Brentford, Barnsley and Villa have tried it with varying levels of success. And now we feel it's our turn. Let's hark back, remember some obscure 90s and noughties names who never hit dizzy heights, but topped the charts for certain statistics and ensure our latest nostalgic 11 is greater than the sum of its parts. Arthur, you're here to help. Yes, I am always here, ready to help, having thoroughly researched obscure footballers. Today we are, as you say, compiling the Moneyball 11. Players who perhaps weren't brilliant footballers, but thrived at one particular thing. Uh, We're playing a 4-4-2 formation. Very excited to put this one together then. Yeah, absolutely. I've been trawling stats websites to try and find the most obscure um, statistics I possibly could about obscure footballers. Um, we, we love hearing from you in the 11 at 11 pod. It's the word, not the number. Please get in touch with some of your suggestions. I wonder what obscure stat you've conjured up for us for the goalkeeper then. Yes, I've been taking all my time outside of work up with researching the goalkeepers with the most high claims in football history. <laughs> Hi, is that like a kind of claims from corners or something? Yeah, corners, crosses, generally relieving the pressure on the defence by coming out and catching a high ball. I have immense experience of watching this player do that. It's Marcus Harneman. Oh, yes. Of course, a Reading player first up. (laughs) Yeah, I had to. It's on brand. Um, I just remember so clearly the, the chance of USA ringing around the Madstad during those glory years for Reading. He was a, a fan favourite. He'd always take his shirt off, interestingly, post-game and give it to a young fan with an American flag. And he was never really an outstanding goalkeeper in general. I think he was fantastic for Reading, a decent shot stopper, but prone to the odd error and not the most wonderful distributor of the ball. So he was an old-fashioned keeper in that sense. But he did stand out for this incredible ability to relieve pressure on the defence by coming and claiming crosses. And there are stats to back that up. Talking about his career, he moved from the MLS to Fulham in 1999, but couldn't displace Mike Taylor. Not many can. Uh, So eventually he was loaned to Reading, and we liked him so much that uh, we decided to sign him permanently. In 05-06, he helped us gain promotion to the top flight for the first time in our history. Uh, That was a record points total of 106 points. Uh, And then we remained in the Premier League, finishing eighth in that first year. I don't think fans of his other teams in England maybe saw the same Marcus Harneman. He did play for Wolves and he actually had a gameless spell at Everton. So I can assure you they definitely didn't see the same Marcus Harneman. But certainly during those years, he was an imposing presence. Like I say, not the most technically wonderful goalkeeper, but just a real character and someone that was was always going to be on the team sheet for Reading during that time. The one thing I do remember more than anything, though, is these audacious high claims. He would leap like a salmon and pluck it out the air like a wide receiver. And it's funny I should mention that because I do wonder whether Marcus Heinemann's skill at high claims has come from his passion for American football. He's a diehard Seattle Seahawks fan. And the stats back this up. Um, In the 06-07 Premier League season, he made 61 high claims, which is the fifth most in the league. Probably the best statistic from a goalkeeper that wasn't considered one of the elite at that time. In contrast, he made just 21 punches, so down to, to eighth for that. So clear that claiming the ball was his, always his preferred option when the ball came into the box, which isn't always the case with goalkeepers nowadays. I think that's a really important attribute to have. Currently, Southampton have Fraser Forster, who is an absolute beanpole of a man, but he, he seems to be unable to claim the ball. He seems to punch mm. it an awful lot. 
And in punching it, you're always leaving yourself open to someone lurking on the edge of the box. You can just deposit in, in the top corner. So certainly could make him undervalued as a goalkeeper if we can harness those high claims. A hundred percent, because I think this Moneyball 11 is about finding those undervalued statistics, this being one of them, that I think evidently centre-backs will become nervy when they don't have a reliable goalkeeper behind them. As we do on the 11, I've compiled some tidbits about his life and it seems he was a true All-American. He loves death metal, he's fascinated by motorbikes and he stalks deer in his spare time. Left back, Arthur. Left back, uh, I've gone for Juan Manuel Vargas. <laughs> I, I recognise that name, I, I think, from like video games. Potentially. He was very, very good on video games. Uh, and the reason that I picked up on him in particular is that I have a soft spot for Fiorentina. Yes. And I always okay. have for some reason. I think it's because my sister spent a year living there. And so uh, I feel a slight bit of affinity with the city of Florence. And one Manuel Vargas, nicknamed El Loco, is a Peruvian left back who was essentially known as an incredibly attacking presence down the left flank. And in terms of this money ball 11, I really feel that left back is a crucial outlet for us. We want them to be, as we love so much on the 11, bombing forward. Uh, we want them to uh, to be to be taking chances and crossing the ball in. And that is something that Vargas was particularly good at. In Football Manager, he was famed for having 20 for crossing, which is the full rating. And in 2009-10, he averaged 2.5 crosses a game, which, which just goes to show that the guy was literally always around the area crossing. He got 10 assists that season. They had a striker in their team, Alberto Gilardino, who was incredibly strong in the air. Uh, and I just think it's an excellent tool to have. Gilardino is quoted as saying that... Vargas is the best crosser he's played with. And obviously this is a striker who's played in the Italian national setup for quite a number of years. And so obviously he has been on the end of some excellent deliveries over time. And it wasn't just his crossing. His dribbling was excellent. He had shot power from distance. I would say it's on a par with Hulk. And he was such a menace down that left flank that Cesare Prandelli, the Fiorentina coach, moved him forward into a kind of left wing role. I just think Moneyball is, is about identifying a particularly strong attribute that a player has that can be sort of taken in isolation from a player who wasn't that brilliant. And I think Vargas was very, very good. There were links across his career with Liverpool. At one stage, Aston Villa wanted him. Um, but his defensive work was pretty suspect. And I suppose that's why he was brought forward. But mm. in this eleven. You know, we're, we're taking his defensive liabilities in exchange for his brilliant offensive presence. Yeah, I think um, that's genius as a suggestion, actually, Arthur. Um, it, I hear he was also lined up to be the next Real Madrid left back at one point, the replacement for Roberto Carlos. Yeah, he, he's a very similar type of player in the sense that he's flair. He has the ability to strike the ball. Um, he showed immense loyalty to Fiorentina. Uh, where he spent most of his career. He made 147 appearances over eight years and also starred on the international stage. He made 62 appearances for Peru and he achieved two third place finishes in the Copa America, one of which he was he was sent off in a, in a semi-final. So perhaps uh, wasn't a key <laughs> component in getting them to that, that stage. There's also a great video on YouTube called Las Locuras de, uh, de Juan Manuel Vargas which is a video just showing his craziness, pulling down a teammate's shorts during an interview. He's dancing during a pre-match warm-up. Uh, he takes a practice penalty by dummying and kicking his boot off into the air and then calmly slotting beyond the goalkeeper. And also at Catania, which was the club he played at before Fiorentina, he is fondly remembered by fans for celebrating a goal by giving a French kiss to teammate Giannatha Spinazzi. Wow. Uh, so, uh, he he just seems like a great guy uh, yeah. to have in the dressing room. And as I say, I think that crossing attribute will be just invaluable for uh, for creating goals in this team. Well researched. Yeah, love his inclusion. And alongside him, I felt with his crossing ability going forward, we needed someone more dedicated to the 
defensive side of the game. So at left centre-back, we have someone known for their strength. And that's Marcin Vasilevsky. Oh, a legend, a legend. And actually, Ben, thank you for providing defensive solidity because his centre-back partner is certainly not defensive solidity. (laughs) Well, Marcin is. I mean, I I mentioned strength was the key statistic I wanted to pull out. And I think it is undervalued, to be honest, because ultimately football is still a contact sport. And I I think particularly in the defensive areas, if you can out-muscle, a quick opponent that is one way of completely nullifying their threat unfortunately it's really hard to quantify strength unless you know exactly how much a player bench presses Uh, and in the 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 case of marcin i don't oh no i can refer to a few slightly sketchy statistics that i found arthur on fifa 16 his strength rating was 87 and his aggression 88. That one of wow. the highest in the game. Uh, and his it's, next best stat was just 79. I feel so, like it's a, it's a potent combination combining strength and aggression. Yeah. Uh, and I feel they're fair statistics, to be honest. His overall rating was 72. So it shows you just how much strength and aggression made up that total. And of relevance, I feel, over 30 games in the Premier League, he won 56% of his duels with a 69% tackle success rate. So he was actually very successful at using his strength to his advantage. He was a six foot one juggernaut who became a household name at Andelect. He played 184 games for them between 2006 and 2013. But actually, it wasn't just his physical strength that was on show. It was his mental strength, too. He suffered a horrendous broken leg in 2009, uh, which left him out for nearly a year. But he returned to form almost immediately upon his return and helped Anderlecht to the Belgium title in 2012 and 2013. Uh, And the love of the Anderlecht fans for him was so strong that when he did move on to Leicester City, a coachload of Anderlecht fans travelled to the King Power Stadium to support him in a game against Millwall. So really uh, nice. I love that. Certainly someone who kind of, again, got the crowd on side. This is where we know the tattooed strongman best, I suppose, for helping Leicester City up to the Premier League and ultimately winning the top prize with them in 2016. His rugged displays and plaudits, even if some of his technical skill left a lot to be desired. Um, And he's very prominent in all the celebration videos after that unprecedented title win. But actually, and I don't know whether you know this, he was not entitled to claim a winner's medal. He only played four times that season. And unfortunately, he needed five to get. Oh, so cruel. Yeah. So Marcin is one of those unlucky types that unfortunately didn't get to get to win a medal um, in a title success. I think I feel like I really need to justify this strength mark a little bit better. So I have a story in anecdotal form, um, which I think shows Vasilevsky in the best light. This is a, uh, a story of when he went to dinner with Richie Delayit, as you do. <laughs> yeah. And Delayit recounts, I remember going for a meal with him at a very smart restaurant. This is Vasilevsky. All of a sudden, he picked up his glass and literally bit into it without turning a hair. <laughs> There were pieces of glass everywhere. He looked at me and started laughing. I just couldn't understand what he was doing. So, I mean, that is bizarre. Um, And and what do strong men do post-football, Arthur? Well, they become MMA fighters, of course. Uh, (laughs) Vasilevsky is pursuing a new career as a cage fighter. Um, He's been a long-time mixed martial arts fan and has attended numerous bouts in Poland. Um, He's actually been tipped to play uh, or fight rather against another fellow pro footballer, ex-Bolton and Hearts defender, Blazej Augustin, in his first bout. So um, using his strength in different ways now, Marcin. I also like that you refer to him as a juggernaut as well. Um, So does that, I mean, typically, Ben, you do love that term and you use Mm. it for height. And six foot one is, is not a small man by any means, but 
usually you deploy it for a sort of six foot four plus man. So you saying that it's such a versatile term that you can use it for strength as well. Yeah. I see him as like a snow plow. He's not humongous, but the force is such that he is a juggernaut in his own You're not going to stop him. No, you won't. Not Marcin. <laughs> Good. And, and I'm grateful, as I say, for his defensive solidity, because alongside him, I'm proposing we, we choose Philippe Albert. Oh, yes. The man with the interchangeable name. I love it. Indeed. And I, I, I feel like his stat is not so clear cut because he played in the 90s. I mean, there aren't reams of stats with which to support the fact that this is the case. But I picked him for his ability to transition defence to attack yes. by any means possible. I think transitions will put him, will put him in for you. Yeah, we need that because I don't feel like Marcus Hahnemann or Marcin Vasilevsky are going to contribute much there. So the balance is improved with Albert. I agree. Uh, he played in Belgium for Charleroi and Mechelen and Anderlecht before. We've got another Anderlecht alumni. Oh, this is very good. This is brilliant. We might have to tag them on Twitter. <laughs> I'm sure they won't get back to us. Yeah. Uh, then he helped Belgium qualify for the 1994 World Cup. And that's what really kind of brought him to the world's attention. His exploits at that World Cup earned him a £2.6 million transfer to Kevin Keegan's Newcastle United. Mm. Um, Kevin was a bit of a hero for him growing up. Uh, and so despite interest from quite a lot of places, it was Newcastle he ended up. Uh, and in quite an interesting quirk, he was given the number 27 shirt as he completed the transfer on his 27th birthday. He was a graceful, goal-scoring, mustachioed centre-back. At Newcastle, his less-than-defensive tendencies came to the fore in a team that became known as the Entertainers. Uh, He would often make runs forward and be found roaming on the edge of the opposition box. Uh, And really, his most famous moment probably came when he scored an audacious chip from 20 yards over Peter Schmeichel in a 5-0 win over Man U in 96. In In many ways, I feel like He's been hard done by not featuring in an 11 up until now. Many would have called for his inclusion in the Worldies 11. Essentially, he played like an attacking midfielder at centre-back. It was incredible. He would link defence and attack successfully. Injuries towards the end of the decade limited his first-team chances, and he spent 13 games on loan at third-tier Fulham who were, again, managed by Keegan. I feel like he just followed Keegan around. He was promoted as Division Two champions uh, with Fulham, scoring twice. Looking at him as a player, I I would say he's one of the most satisfying centre-backs to watch YouTube compilations of. Yeah. I don't know, have you watched any of them? I have watched a few, yeah. Honestly, the guy just played with such grace. I I feel like it would be a a really good inclusion at the back. Uh, And after football, he took up work as a greengrocer at a fruit and veg company. No. Um, Yeah, he worked there until 2012. He said, (laughs) I would prepare the produce for customers. I did it for 11 years and didn't touch the money I earned in my football career. Up early, finishing late. That's what I wanted. A normal life. I'm very proud of it. Otherwise, when you stop football, you do nothing. You have no life. Well, the man, profound that, statement. the man that was in charge of transitions on the pitch, making an outstanding career transition there. Um, he's not the first player we've discussed who was interested in fruit and veg. I'm trying to think who the other one was. Was it, was it George Friend? It might have been. He, he certainly, yeah, no, I think his, his dad was a farmer. Or something yeah, like and he used to yeah. prepare fruit platters for the players' birthdays. Then we had a pancake maker. I feel yeah. like we could make a seriously good kind of, I don't know, food shop. 11. Yeah, the Fruit 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I think that's a superb pick. And actually, from what I read about Albert, he was very much like a man of the people. And I think he just suited that environment at Newcastle with Kevin Keegan and um, excelled in many ways. I think that was the most successful spell of his career. Um, and great to have him in this Moneyball eleven. Let's choose a right back. As much as I trust Marcus Harneman with the high claims, I don't think we can do enough to prevent deliveries coming into the box. 
So I am going to put a right back in who is a star when it comes to blocking crosses. Greta Steinson. Greta Steinson. What a guy. Bolton yeah. stalwart under, under Big Sam. So in 2009-2010, out of the right backs who played more than 20 games, this is a, a really detailed <laughs> statistic, Greta Steinson led the Premier League for blocking crosses. That was no. 0.8 per game, which doesn't sound like a lot, but actually that's pretty much cutting out one cross per game, which, which is useful. I have to say, I did find this in my research that often you would, <laughs> the table topper of a particular stat, you'd be like, oh, that's really yeah, not that impressive. With, with an impressive 0.8 per game. Wow. I, I actually, I didn't, I, I felt the same way, but it's the fifth highest average out of all defenders that year. Wow. And he did keep this rate up as well throughout his three years in the Premier League with 0.7 per game both of the following seasons I can tell you're impressed um it's no wonder really because he had a large gangly frame he was six foot two um but he didn't lack pace to block off the runner um he was from a small fishing town in Iceland when we say small in Iceland in one setting we mean incredibly small there were actually only a thousand inhabitants in that place it wasn't until he was 23 that he was spotted by young boys of Bern and his career went up a notch, followed by a successful time playing UEFA Cup football with AZ Alkmaar in the mid-noughties. Bolton Wanderers had a decent record at the time with signing players from Nordic countries. Um, and one of those, Gudni Bergson, recommended Steinson to Sam Allardyce in 2008 ahead of a £3.5 million move. I feel like at at Bolton, I don't know whether you remember watching him, Arthur. He was kind of the definition of okay. He was quite decent. He'd battle with Sam Ricketts for first-team football, and he played over 50% of the time um, as Bolton successfully fended off relegation year on year from lower mid-table. And I can only assume the reason for this was that they were conceding far fewer goals from crosses, with Greta Steinson cutting out 0.7 per game. No. Yeah. Oh, wow. What an impact. But perhaps the mo- most noteworthy thing that happened to Steinson at Bolton was having his contracts extended by 18,002 years. What? A clerical well, at error. Bolton. At Bolton. A clerical error led to his contract being renewed until 20,014. The player's spokesman explained that a typographical error by Bolton chairman Phil Gartside would see the Icelander earn £13,000 a week for the next 936,104 weeks, plus appearance bonuses. Steinson asked to comment, said, obviously, I'm really happy with this new deal. <laughs> At first, the club only wanted to offer a one-year extension, so I'm delighted they've relented and given me the full 18000 the Icelandic right back also confirms that he expected to finish his career at the Reebok Stadium. <laughs> he said, I think I'll probably retire when this deal's up. <laughs> After all, I'll be 18,032 years old by then, which is a good age to hang up your boots and maybe think about going into coaching. <laughs> oh, that is so good. It's classic. Oh man, I completely didn't know that. That is, oh. Yeah. Wow. So I love how he's actually he's actually taking the piss out of the deal as well. I know. Also, I don't know whether he has a leg to stand on there. He signed a contract that yeah. does time to the club for I know. that length of time. It's crazy. I, I mean, that means his contract is still running. Bolton yeah, fans. for a long time. He'll be blocking crosses until the year twenty thousand and fourteen. Here they are, looking for number five. Let's take a break from our Moneyball 11. I think with this 11, Arthur, we're dealing in the world of fact. It's less of opinion. It's about fact. It's about stats that we can see uh, and make a judgment call as to whether they'll fit in our team. So I actually thought it might be quite useful for us to discover what the greatest Premier League fact is 
of all time was. Uh, and I've picked out a few. I've very much enjoyed researching this. And I thought you could be the judge as to what the eleven believes is the greatest Premier League fact of all time. Oh, delighted to be bestowed with that honour. Yeah. How does it sound? Good? Very good. Okay. If we have missed one, at 11pod, the word, not the number, tell us your Premier League fact and uh, we'll retweet if we think Sorry. it's good enough. If we've missed any fact. Yeah, that's true, actually. I have kept that quite broad as a brief, haven't I? Well, hey, at least you're you're opening us us up to a lot of Twitter interaction. Then, Yeah, our inbox will be full for the first <laughs> time ever. I can't wait for that. Okay, I've picked six and I think these are quite entertaining. So let's see how we get on. Fact one, two players have scored Premier League penalties with both feet. Bobby Zamora and Oberfemi Martins. That's amazing. I know. Which, are they just ambipedstrous? Ambipedstrous. I don't, I don't even know what the word after. What's the word then? I don't know, but I don't know. what What is it that happens that makes you think, oh, I'm going to swap feet? I guess you miss a couple and you think, well... Maybe. But then if you miss a couple, surely they wheel you out and bring someone else in. I, yeah, I think Obafemi Martins, Martins was quite a flair player. So he probably feels like it's it's kind of a badge of honour. Like yeah. he, almost like if you if you beat someone at table tennis and then reveal you were playing with your left hand, it's quite it's quite kind of um yeah almost it's going to psychologically damage the opponent. So maybe that's what Obafemi was going for, and Bobby. It doesn't make much sense, does it? But um, I think this is a fact. You, a fact. Uh, well, I, I I don't know how deeply you delved into this fact, but did they take multiple penalties with with each of these feet, or was it um, one, a one? So time I thing? I watched all of the penalties in Premier League history. And um, and I don't know, Arthur. Okay. Fact two. David, 14 times, and James, 11 times, were the most common first names in the Premier League in 2010-11. Yet it was the first season in which David James did not appear. <laughs> that is brilliant. Wow, oh, man! Okay, but were of... they were they the pop were they the most popular names the previous season? Uh, I don't think so. Otherwise, no. I, I think they'd have it mentioned would be a rubbish fact, wouldn't it? Um, I, I can I can I was trying to think of some of them like David Murphy of Birmingham. Yeah. That was for some reason the first that came to my head. Um, James Milner James. must have been playing James by Milner. then. Yeah, actually, yep. that's a really good shout, James Milner. Um, James Gardner. Who's James Gardner? <laughs> just made up a football player. Is he a, is he a friend of yours? I feel I don't like think James he was Gardner playing. was like he, he smacks of of Hull City. James player. Gardner? No? no, I think you've I think you've definitely made that up. <laughs> don't Maybe know what I'm David doing. David Healy would he have been? Playing? David Healy. I mean, of considering course. we're yeah. a podcast about footballers, we're really struggling out of the twenty five Davids and Jameses in twenty ten. But anyway, yeah. Um, there we go. That is a fact. Anyway, fact three. Out of all of the teams in Premier League history, there's only been one where you can't colour in any of the letters. Hull City. Oh, I, you know, I think I did know that because one of my one of my mates, his dad loves trivia. And it just he's, I think he's given me that question before. Yeah, it's a very good one. The only debate is some people, they kind of in a little eye, they kind of circle the dot on top don't they instead of just a dot in which case you yeah. could color that bit in no i no no oh, okay no. fair enough <laughs> no fine well that told me um fact four iago aspas took more corners often badly than he had shots in the premier league wow mm. Well, I suppose did he have uh, he had Andy Carroll in the uh, in the box to to, to yeah. nod them in, or was that pre was he post Carroll or pre Carroll? I think he was post Carroll, PC um, PC as they say. Yeah, uh, yeah. Who was he? he who great, was he crossing was he? them into? I want to say Dirt Count. Yeah, probably. But I'm kind of guessing. Aspas is a weird one because he went on to be really very very successful at Celta Vigo after he, he left Liverpool. But Liverpool yeah. was just a bit of a car crash for him, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, didn't work out for poor old Iago. Uh, mm. Fact five. The Premier League trophy is only worth 
about £3,700. In comparison, the FIFA World Cup trophy is worth $20 million. Wow. Mm. That's that's incredibly low value on the Premier League's trophy. Yeah, I know. That's, it is, in, that's amazing. And, uh, the, and, the, and the World Cup itself isn't, isn't as old, is it? Because no, it was... of course. So the Jules Rimet trophy. Yeah. Um, but obviously the Premier League trophy would have been, would you say, minted in 1992? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But that is relatively recent. But get, I mean, even maybe it's, a, maybe it's the replica that's worth that then. Yeah. I, I, can't, I don't believe you. Actually, I think I think that's cool. wrong. <laughs> cool. Yeah, no worries. Well, that won't win. Um, and fact six, your final option. Kenny Cunningham has played the most Premier League minutes without scoring a goal. An incredible 30,000 minutes over 335 games. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, he is a centre-back. But you'd, yeah. think at, you'd think that at some point in those games, the ball would have just dropped in the six-yard box and he'd prod home. Or... Yeah. You'd think that... Um, sorry, is that Premier League goals or overall Premier goals? League. Premier League. Premier League goals. I would think Tony Hibbert rivals him. Yes, that's true. Hibbo. Hibbo. If Hibbo scores, we riot. Um, I think that's a good one. In terms of these, these stats, I feel like... What was stat one again? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I feel like your reaction kind of dwindled oh, yeah. as, as this the quiz went right, on. The left and right there. footed penalties. That was that yeah. incredible, I think. I, I think in terms of crowning a champion, there's a lot of responsibility here because we are yes. definitively saying that it's the greatest Premier League fact of all time. Yes. And given that, I'm going to go, I'm going to go left and right footed penalties and be pedestrous penalties. Wow. Wow. Wow, indeed. Wow. Wow. Okay, so we return to the Moneyball 11. Nostalgic names who excelled at a certain thing, but otherwise were fairly average. Arthur, who's playing left midfield? I'm really excited about this flank. I think it's just going to be an entertaining flank. Fans going to the ground will be clamouring to be watching on this side of the pitch, really. I think they'll be disappointed when your right side of the pitch is is, is on their side, you know? You're really bigging um, up this flank. I am, because on this flank, on the left, is Hatem Ben Arthur. Oh, that's... Do you know what? I really wanted you to get a player in that contains both of our names. <laughs> Just realised that. <laughs> Hatem Ben Arthur. Fantastic. <laughs> Should we, should we get an up for grabs nomination from Hatem? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I think Hatem Benarfa, he kind of flattered to deceive. And sometimes I feel like he was an elite player, almost maybe too good for the 11. But then I remember he played for Hull. Yeah. this. Well, I'm, I'm impressed that you remember he played for Hull. He got them relegated, <laughs> didn't he? I- I didn't remember he played for Hull. He did go on loan from Newcastle to Hull. And I thought that was one of those... Did he really play there? 11 mm. nominations. But he was a bit of a flawed genius, I thought. He had talent and abundance, but his attitude seemed to stop him from fulfilling that enormous potential. In quite a weird quote in my mind, Jean-Louis Gasset, who was Bordeaux manager, said, I'm not going to believe in Father Christmas at my age. Hatem Ben Arthur is a creator, a football genius, if it's possible. But frankly, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what he's trying to say there. Why is he mentioned Father Christmas there? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> is he is he equating Hatem to Father Christmas? I really don't know. As in, he doesn't believe in Father Christmas, but he believes in Hatem Benaf. <laughs> I wow, really, really bizarre. But his undoubted X factor was his superb dribbling ability. Since the 06-07 season, Hatem Ben Arthur is the player who has attempted with 1,217 and succeeded with 628, the most dribbles in Ligue 1. And that's despite spending five seasons in England with Newcastle and then, as we say, Hull City. He made 10 or more successful dribbles in a match 
on six separate occasions during that period. And he completed 11 once for Lyon against Marseille in 2008. And I feel that stat is is one that holds up a little better under a magnifying glass than the, the 0.7 crosses per game stat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not even going to try and argue that. Yeah. And his most successful season probably was in 2014-15, when with Nice, he scored 17 league goals and completed on average across the season 4.5 dribbles a game across the season. To compare that with the Premier League's current dribble masters, you've got Alan Saint-Maximin, who's close on 4.3. You've got Adama Traore. Obviously, his stat is slightly watered down by the fact that he's not in the Premier League at the moment. He's with Barcelona. Uh, He's 4.2. And then Wilfred Zaha, who you feel takes on so many dribbles a game. He's only 2.2 a game. So to have 4.5 dribbles a game is pretty phenomenal. And he would take on and beat men with such regularity uh, that he he created chances aplenty. He played 76 games for Newcastle and created 91 chances. That's including assists. Uh, So with 10 assists in all, he's got 81 unconverted chances. And I can't wait to see who's going to be gobbling up these chances up front. It's, oh. it's, going to be, it's going to be quite the creative fest on the left side of the pitch. He wore shirt number three at Valladolid later on in his career, which was quite bizarre. And he said he thought the number looked pretty, um, <laughs> which is interesting. But obviously for an attacking midfielder, it's a very unusual number, I yeah. would say. And I, I think the fact that PSG is the only world-class team he's played for really in his career and he didn't score for them he didn't even play in his second season with them I just think that shows that he's got this world-class talent but an attitude that held him back and I think this Moneyball team could access that talent with Mm. the right man in charge who would we have who do you think could access that? I mean, he had Claude Puel in charge of him at Nice in that season that he did really well. And I yeah. wouldn't say Claude Puel's an attacking coach by any stretch of imagination. We need a, a man motivator. It would be really interesting to see, actually, if there is a manager that kind of defies his reputation when you look at the stats. I wonder if that's a challenge for our listeners at 11 yeah. Pod to decide which manager could get the best out of this team. I think that's a really good challenge. But uh, I am excited to see Hatem on the on the left wing. Me too. And slotting him in is someone whose stats don't lie when it comes to key passes. Sorry, it, slotting him in? Slotting him in down the left-hand side. Oh, as in passing balls through to him. Yes, key so I passes. Thought were, I thought you were going to be slotting another player in. Not to him. To the eleven. <laughs> It's Ludovic Silvestra. Oh my gosh. That name rings a bell. Blackpool? Yes. Yeah. He was a silky Frenchman with supreme vision who you may have forgotten about. Um, Believe it or not, the six foot beanpole midfielder actually made his professional debut for FC Barcelona. Okay, that is astonishing. Um, he played in two defeats for the club, which must be very rare to have actually played two games for Barcelona and never got a point. Uh, that was in 2006, alongside the likes of Eto, Xavi and Iniesta. But he wouldn't last there and he'd spend four years in the Czech League before signing as an unknown quantity for newly promoted Blackpool. And here, Silvestre was a bit unlucky. He arrived at Bloomfield Road at a time when Charlie Adam was at the peak of his powers and was seen as the primary creative source for the team. Uh, And so he only managed eight Premier League appearances as a result. But his patience was rewarded in the championship where he had an opportunity to show his class and fans got to see the passing maestro that Ludo really was. Comments on social media suggest he oozed class. Probably the most gifted player of ours I've ever seen, said one. He could make a two-yard pass look quality, said another. (laughs) And the stats show he passed with purpose throughout his career. Even with his limited game time in the Premier League, Ludo averaged 1.3 key passes a game, which was the 79th best in the league. 
And actually, when you consider he didn't play very frequently and he was playing for Blackpool, I think that's a reasonable statistic. But given um, it is per game, not in total, I don't yeah, know the frequency he, of his games makes a difference. Absolutely, but playing for Blackpool. Yeah, this is true. Blackpool were dross. But what I would say to, to justify that is 1.3 uh, key passes per game was with an 85.7% pass success rate, whereas Charlie Adams was just 72%. Oh, so... Wow. When Ludovic Silvestra tries a key pass, Arthur, Ludovic Silvestra makes a key pass, Arthur. And how many assists did he get with those key passes? I don't think he got any, but that's the next stage <laughs> that we're going to build on with the Moneyball 11. So I'm, exactly. I'm finding this undervalued edge within the statistics for him. I like that. Ian Holloway loved him too. He said, after we played at Aston Villa, where Ludo started and absolutely ran the show, Barry Bannon said to me, how good is that Silvestra? He hasn't got the defensive skills of a Claude Makalele. However, we need to give him the ball because he's brilliant on it. He needs to improve his calling for the ball. So maybe that's something we can work on on the training grounds, get the more confident lads like Hatem Ben Arthur and Juan Manuel Vargas around him and rallying him. Exactly. I'm disappointed you haven't read that quote out in a West Country accent, Ben. Yeah, I didn't feel it. I just didn't feel it. I think that's a really good pick. I, I, I like the fact that it's a player who we didn't see much here in the Premier League. And so we didn't have an, a, a great opportunity to see how key he could have been. Sylvester and Ben Arthur, this is bloody attacking. Are we going to try and offset against that with our other centre mid? We are. We absolutely are. I've gone for work rate as a nice. key statistic, and it's David Jones. Oh, David Jones. <laughs> yes. David. He just sounds, as a name, I've got nothing against David's. And here's another David, Ben. David. Oh, there we damn go. it. Yeah. There we go. He was just a worker, a trier in the centre of the park. So, I mean, in terms of researching this one, it wasn't the most straightforward because David Jones is the 74th on the list of David Joneses on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's 12th on the list of footballing David Joneses, no. incredibly. Uh, how many David Joneses do you think there are in total on Wikipedia? I, I wouldn't have said more than 10. Um, 102. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so our David is 74th. And what a player he was. He captained Man United to the 2003 FA Youth Cup. Okay. In a side that contained such titans of the game as Chris Eagles, Sylvan Ebanks-Blake, Phil Bardsley and Paul McShane. Wow. I can't imagine Phil Bardsley as a youth player. <laughs> no, I can't. he would have looked exactly the same. He probably would have. Yeah. Um, despite that, though, he was unable to oust Keane, Skulls or latterly Carrick from the United midfield and so left uh, for successful loans at NEC Nijmegen in the Netherlands and Preston uh, before joining Derby for £1 million. Sir Alex Ferguson later said that he thought he'd let David Jones go too cheaply. Um, so that shows what the great man thought of David. And he had a positive start at Derby, but declined. Uh, and it's Burnley that many will know him from. Mm. And I just think, I said I picked him for his work rate. And the definition for the term workhorse is a person or machine that dependably performs hard work over a long period of time. And I can't think there are many players that sum that up more than David Jones. <laughs> In the 2014-15 season in the Premier League for Burnley, he covered 11.352 kilometres per fixture. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a huge distance um, to be covering every game. Alongside Scott Arfield in the centre of the park, they had work rate in spades. Mm. And this seems to be a key component of any Sean Dyche side uh, until his recent sacking, Jack Cork performed that role for him. And Jack Cork, I, you know, I saw firsthand at, at Southampton, the guy literally just ran and ran and ran 
um, he said to play under Pochettino, you needed to have two hearts. Um, such was the the work rate demanded of the Argentine. I just think whilst he was probably the more attacking of those two centre midfielders for Burnley, he still distinguishes himself, I think, as a solid, unspectacular midfielder. And I think that's something that certainly when you consider he's alongside Ludovic Sylvester in the centre of the park, we need someone who's just going to run and run and run. And I think work rate is a very underrated statistic or uh, value in today's game. Sean Dyche's Burnley, I, I found this quite interesting. Most clubs implement a fine system for small infringements like turning up late to training or, or things like that. Uh, Dyche at Burnley had what I guess you would call a wheel of misfortune. So essentially you spin the wheel and you've got a punishment based on on Sean's Sean's decisions. He's put a few things on the on the wheel of misfortune. Okay. And and David said of this, there are a few funny things such as dancing, but the one that sticks out is Michael Duff doing a lap dance. <laughs> <laughs> he looked a bit too good. He looked like he'd done it before. I think it's a bit questionable for Sean to put lap dancing on, on the fine yeah. system. I, I love that image. Well, no, I don't love that image. Goodness, <laughs> that came out a bit wrong. Um, but I, I also think it's a fantastic pick. I also enjoy that on Wikipedia, he is un- so David is uncapped for both of the countries he's eligible for, which are England and Wales. And on Wikipedia, it does. It's almost like a come and get me plea. Uh, it says under his international section, he's still eligible to play for the senior teams of either England or Wales. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like his agent has curated his Wikipedia entry. Just so if if the Welsh scouts are looking, they can be like, oh, David, David's available. Yeah, we'll go for him. Yeah. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Okay, right midfield is up for grabs. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know we get nominations in from sports journalists, authors, personalities. We've got a couple of those coming in at the end of the show. So we're saving right mid to the end. Let's move on to the strike force. It's a terrific run by Ben Arthur. He could go all the way. He has gone all the way. So the first of our strikers is a player who I expect to link up superbly with one Manuel Vargas. And that's because I want him getting on the end of crosses. It's Duncan Ferguson. Big dunk. Okay. Otherwise known as Duncan Disorderly. Uh, because of his his eight red cards, he shares the record with Patrick Vieira and Richard Dunn in the Premier League for red cards. Bit of a bit of a hothead at times, it must be said, but a really useful presence in the air. Mm. After success with Dundee United in his homeland, before a tricky time at Rangers, he was bought to Merseyside in 1995 as Everton desperately fought the threat of relegation. In two separate spells at Everton. Via a brief period at Newcastle, he won fans' hearts with his full-blooded performances. He certainly wore his heart on his sleeve and chipped in with invaluable goals, often ensuring the club did remain in the top flight. Six foot four, certainly worthy of the title juggernaut. Mm. 36 headers in 270 games. That's one every 7.71 games, uh, which is actually... When it sounds like it doesn't sound that impressive, but actually it's quite it's quite up there. With headed the goals, presumably. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Not just headers. Yeah. He probably did a few more than that. I yeah, I would estimate. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, of his sixty-eight Premier League goals, thirty-six of them were headers. That's fifty-two point nine percent. So to score over half of your Premier League goals as headers is pretty impressive. And included within that was the first all-header hat-trick in the Premier League. That was in 1997, December the 28th. He scored all three of his team's goals with his head, the final of which was a late winner as Everton beat Bolton 3-2. Do you know what the only other all-header Premier League hat-trick was? No, not a clue. 
It's Salomon Rondon really? against Swansea in 2016. He scored all three with his head and a 3-1 win against Swansea. It wasn't all plain sailing for him at Everton, though, despite the fact that he did get a testimonial when he retired. In August 2003, Jamie Jackson of The Guardian called Ferguson arguably the biggest waste of money of all, citing his high transfer fees and wages compared to his injury record and age. By that point, he'd scored 12 times in 41 games in three years at Everton, whilst earning over £5 million in salary. So his 192 minutes of play in the 2002-03 season as a goalless substitute cost the club £9,000 per minute. So he was very expensive. But for the sum of his parts, I feel like he was an effective presence in the box. He was a reasonable goal scorer and he's become Mr Everton really since his retirement I also quite enjoyed this little anecdote from Everton physio Mick Rathbone he said my first day I drove into the car park my hands were sweaty I thought oh god they're not gonna like me the big hitters like big dunk and all this kind of stuff I could hear noise in the background I could hear his big voice this is big dunk saying by the way, have you clocked the new physio? It's Bob the fucking builder. And then the door comes open and Big Dunk's there. He comes up to me and goes, I'm Big Dunk. I finished a few fucking physios' careers. And I go, I'm Baz. I finished a few players' careers. He comes <laughs> close to me and goes, fucking brilliant. I'm going to like I just I, find it odd with him. He's, he's got this like hard man persona which he seems to live up to almost like a kind of Roy Keane-esque persona but one of his hobbies is he collects homing pigeons how have you managed to find that out in two minutes I was (laughs) trawling through the internet Arthur that is incredible yeah did wait trains them and then delivers his mail with them or I don't know just got yeah. interesting there's actually quite a lot of money in homing pigeons I guess maybe this is one for another day after rather than this podcast but um, homing pigeon 11 yeah the homing pigeon 11 um big dunk love it very nice who's alongside him Ben Arthur I've been building up to this I feel utterly excited and compelled to talk about Yannick Sagbo <laughs> um Evian legend. Yes. He's in the team for his his poaching, his finishing, if you will. But that might be a bit of a surprise to many Hull fans. Uh, he's a former Ivory Coast international, five foot ten of stocky build, not outstandingly quick, neither exceptionally good in the air. And he scored just four goals in 47 games whilst in England between 2013 and 2015. He played much of that time with Hull City, Uh, A consistent name in Steve Bruce's team sheets as the Tigers managed Premier League survival. He'd compete with Nikita Jelovic, but despite playing more games than both him and Shane Long, he was outscored that year. Unbelievably, Hull's top scorers in the league were on just four. That was Long and Jelovic, and Sagbo didn't even manage that. So you're probably thinking, why the hell am I picking Yannick Sagbo for this 11? I am, yes. Well, he did seem to have a knack, Arthur, for scoring unspectacular goals throughout his career. I decided to look at Yannick Sagbo's YouTube compilation video, and it made for almost comically boring viewing. There was nothing wrong with any of his goals, but all of them are inside the box, tap-ins, neat little headers, penalties... That's for Hull City and also for Evian, as you mentioned, in France. And perhaps the goal that sums this up best is his most famous one, a side foot far post finish in the 2014 FA Cup semi-final, which helped Hull on their way to runners-up medals. It's well taken, don't get me wrong, but really it's a very straightforward chance. So I got looking at the stats and I found out that of the 17 goals that are registered on who scored, Only one was scored outside of the penalty area. And I've seen that one and it is right on the edge of the penalty area. So I feel like Sagbo is absolutely only at home when he's poaching in the penalty box. Yeah, I am concerned that 
of the 17 goals just came out of your mouth. Mm. And that's the striker we want to score goals for this team. Well, this is where it gets interesting, Arthur. Having established that Sagbo is most at home within the penalty area, I became intrigued as to what had happened to his career beyond Hull City. And I found this. He decided to sign for Qatari side Um Salau, which is an odd name, almost as if they were still considering what to call it when they actually officially <laughs> named it. Um Salau. And there he scored 51 goals in just 95 games. So an incredible okay. strike rate. Um, and whilst I have no record at all of how these goals went in, I think looking at his stats for Hull and Evion, we can make a fairly decent assumption that they were all tap-ins. Uh, and it must be said that this was a struggling Hull City team he was playing for. And, and the actually, the, the delivery into him was pretty poor. Steve Bruce, not known for his attacking play. So what I'd like to suggest to you is that on the basis of these fairly limp and unimpressive statistics that I've found, we can gather that Sagbo is an unpolished diamond at Hull and that if Hatem Ben Arthur and Juan Manuel Vargas can give him the right service within the six-yard box, he might be able to score quite a few goals for this Moneyball eleven. I love that. Not to mention Ludovic Silvestre as well. Those um, key passes. I, I, yeah, I completely agree. I can say from experience that Evian were not the most quality outfit either. And so his lack, of, I mean, he, and he did actually score a reasonable amount of goals for them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, put him in a, a league. Well, you've put him in a league there where the quality is a lot lower. So I think the interesting thing would be seeing how he copes in a good team in the Premier League. So the toughest league, but with great service. This is the Moneyball 11 after all. Strikers don't come cheap. I don't think anyone is going to be knocking on Yannick Zagbo's door to get him in this window. But I think we've got stats here to prove that with the right service, Yannick could be a top scorer for this Moneyball 11. And I will make the case that we should bring him in. Okay, up for grabs was our right midfielder. And to kind of set a more exclusive brief, we have decided that pace should be the statistic that we pick up on for the right midfield slot. Um, And a nomination has come in from Dave Black. Dave, thank you so much. Um, He's a talented writer. He's written two books on championship manager. Uh, And you can follow him on Twitter as well at CM9798 or YouTube CM9798 plays some fantastic nostalgia there around championship manager games. I wonder if those stats will come into his nomination. Everybody who has ever seen my Twitter account will know retro football games are my passion. So it comes as no surprise that my suggestion excelled in both championship manager and pro evolution soccer. Tijani Babangida. Probably one of the less heralded names of that great Ajax side in the mid-90s. But nothing backs up my selection more than his pace stat. And of course, in CM 9798, it's a big fat 20. His durability goes beyond CM 9798 though. And if we fast forward six years to 2003, you are lying if you say you didn't get on the Babangida bus again where he was available for less than 500 grand from Chinese side Changchun, immediately transforming whichever side you were managing. And yes, his pace stat was still a big fat 20. That's not enough, let's look at Pro Evolution Soccer. Now if you look at the very first pairs released in 2001, I can guarantee you built your Master League side around good old speedy TJ. With speed of 92, you'd have been mad not to, and available at a snip of just 27 points. He's an Olympic gold medalist, and he should also be in this team. Dejani Babangida, the name you have to remember you forgot. Yeah, brilliant nomination. I love the name Babangida as well. I think it's really good. Uh, and he was time. a bit of a legend of Dutch football and Nigeria international and incredibly quick. So a strong nomination there. Thank you very much. And we have another nomination from Rob Siney, who runs the Premiership Polls Twitter account. There's loads of very interesting polls on there, uh, all about uh, the big and small questions of the Premiership era. Uh, so some brilliant, nostalgic names on there. Rob's a keen listener. 
and he's got in touch with this nomination. I'd like to nominate Jerome Thomas for your right wing berth this week. Uh, I believe he is a player who was able to offer pace to the side he played for, but not really much else. Um, I've done a little bit of research and I can see that he only scored 11 goals in over 150 Premier League games. Um, very few assists. And I just feel looking and trying to remember the play he was, I feel like he was an inconsistent player, as a lot of wingers are. And all he was able to offer really was his pace. He was able to stretch teams, possibly um, quite quite uh, potent on the counter-attack. Not a lot else I don't think you got from Jerome. Um, I also feel he disappointed a lot of the fan bases he played in front of, West Brom and, and uh, Crystal Palace, certainly. Um, and that's why I think he's he's perfect for this. I feel he could offer pace, bring pace to this uh, limited side and not much else. So my nomination is Jerome Thomas. Vote now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yes, I love it. Jerome Thomas, yeah. All pace, no end product. I think that's fair. Rob, thank you for your support. Hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Um, for our poll on Twitter, we'll have another couple of names in there. Arthur, I think you've got one to suggest. I have, and it's Dennis Romadal. Oh, yes. Yeah. Wasn't there a rumour at one point that he could run 100 metres in just over 10 seconds or something? There was indeed. He was rumoured to run it in 10.2 seconds. Wow. But in response to that, he said, I read that somewhere. But if that's true, I'd be the fastest man in Danish history. Mm. 11.5 is more realistic. Pace is definitely my best weapon. And I've never played against anyone quicker. That is that is a big, big bold statement. So frankly, I mean, I, I think that's my one argument. I can just almost leave it at that. But just to briefly summarise, is he did start his career at a business school in mm. his native Copenhagen as a 17-year-old. And he was destined for a career in computing before an invitation to train with Lingaby changed his life forever. Within 18 months, Romadal was on his way to PSV as the biggest young star in Danish football. Uh, and he was a success at PSV before joining Charlton in the Premier League. He routinely skinned fullbacks during his time with them. He won 126 caps for, for Denmark, uh, all of which is testament to that phenomenal speed because that's pretty much all he had. <laughs> Whilst his time in the Eredivisie did yield a fair few goals, assists and titles, his time in the Premier League showed him really for that lack of end product. He had 75 appearances for Charlton, four goals and, an, and a solitary assist. So he was essentially a pace merchant who would add flair, I think, to our right flank. But little else <laughs> but a decent money ball stat because pace is so key I think I think it will be in this team and the final name going on the poll has that in abundance it's David Adonkor oh David was he a German international he was a German international and he actually does say he clocked the time of 10.6 seconds for the 100 meters Wow. I don't know how much I believe that, but I certainly know how quick he was. So it seems possible. Did he run against a cheater like Possibly. Usain Bolt? I, I don't know who he ran against. I haven't followed that part of his career as closely. Um, but he, you're right that he was called up to the 2006 World Cup squad and Euro 2008 um, and caused havoc for fullbacks. A, a real player to sign on video games such as FIFA and Pro Evo because of that pace. But beyond that, his end product was too often lacking. In 75 appearances for Borussia Dortmund, he scored just two goals, a feat he mm. failed to beat in a subsequent move to Betis. And I think the greatest success of his career came after football, actually, where he won the third series of Germany's Celebrity Big Brother, beating off singers, actresses and a Playboy model. Wow. Good lad. Very, very good pick. Those options, all four of them, will be on Twitter. You can head to our Twitter account, at 11pod, the word, not the number, and vote for your favourite. Again down the left, Ferguson to Collins. Four. Ferguson, left for drive, it's goal number two. Duncan Ferguson 
with a stunning left foot shot. David Bentley, Arthur. That's another David. David Bentley, of course. Yeah. Anyway, he's, um, he's not on the bench. Who is on the bench for you? For me, I mean, I have to give a nod to Rory Delap for his throw-ins. I think the listeners will be will be thinking this is exactly the kind of statistic that would stand out. Rory's been in the previous team, so we thought we'd give the limelight to others. Uh, I also thought Manuel Almunia as well. His penalty saving was phenomenal. Six of the 14 he faced, he saved. Wow. Uh, mm. So perhaps we could bring him off the bench for penalty shootouts. Uh, and then finally, Robin Van Persie. Five seasons hit the post 34 times. Whoa. That's outrageous. That is outrageous. I was actually going to put Rob Hulse on the bench, who hit the woodwork oh. seven times in 06, 07. Um, well, but I feel like, what's the point if Robin's there? Well, Robin not only hit the post seven times in 12, 13 and 8, 9, but he hit the post 10 times in 11, 12. Oh That's goodness. just outrageous. Imagine if they'd all gone in. Yeah. <sighs> Insane. Anyway, uh, let's run through the Moneyball 11 as it is. Uh, in goal, Marcus Harneman. At left back, Juan Manuel Vargas. Centre backs, Marcin Vasilevsky and Philippe Albert. At right back, Gretar Steinson. Left midfield, Hatem Ben Arthur. Centre midfields are Ludovic Silvestra and David Jones. Right mid, your choice on Twitter. And up front, Duncan Ferguson and Yannick Sagbo. Hope you've enjoyed the Moneyball 11 today. See you on the next episode. Oh. See you on the next episode, will we? Who's this guy? Who's oh. this guy? Yeah. <laughs>